0: Welcome to the show Travel Conversations by the Rustic Travel Podcast. This is a show where we will try to recreate those best moments we all have experienced while traveling, which is meeting new people and hearing about their stories and experiences. In each episode, we will have a guest traveler with the most interesting story and travel experience. Today's guest is Tapas Biala. Tapas is from the prestigious Dune School he is a high altitude mountaineer, having done his basic and advanced mountaineering courses from the reputed Nehru Institute of Mountaineering in Uttarkashi. He is an outdoor learning and adventure entrepreneur, having co-founded My Himalayan Adventure and Rustic travel. Tapu's life so far is an awe-inspiring one, having climbed his first mountain peak when he was only 11 years old, he went on to climb many more, quite a few of them, 6,000 meter plus. And this while he was still in school. However, a few years later, his passion for trekking and climbing took a major blow when he was diagnosed with cancer, leukemia. And then, well, let's hear from Tapas himself. Hi Tapas. Welcome to the show. Hi, man. Thank you so much. I think you've, uh, I think I don't deserve so many accolades, but yeah, it's always nice to hear good things about yourself. So Tapas, uh, let's start uh, this podcast. Let's uh, uh, try to know more about you and your passion for trekking and climbing and mountains first. Uh Mountaineering and trekking is the only thing that I really... Who oh, have always wanted, ever, I mean, the, the only thing that I really want to and ever have wanted to do in my entire life, something that the, the passion knows no bounds in, in in my in my case. And um, I credit that largely to my father, who is himself a very uh, reputed mountaineer in India. Um, when I was about six months old, my father got a bag, like specially bag specially made for me. and In that bag, he um, basically—I mean—it was was one of those kind of bags where you know uh, there was a little opening in the bottom, so my legs could fit in, and then he could carry me in that bag. And in that bag, he took me on my first trek when I was six months old. I mean, before I could walk, I was trekking basically. And uh, yeah, and that that love just kind of started from there. I mean, I was as soon as I could walk, I was doing treks, not on a bag, but. on my two feet, um, despite being afraid of everything about the trek. I mean, to at, to, at a point where uh, I was scared of the night because the stars would scare me. Um, even the mention of wildlife would scare me as a young kid. The woods would be eerie, but uh, I just wanted to trek. I mean, I think that's just how the passion kind of ignited and it just continued. I mean, when I was uh, 12 years old, I climbed my first 20,000 feet. Peak in the Himalayas, which at that point of time was a record. Uh, not anymore, that, that record has been given to someone who in, ended up climbing Everest. But yeah, so for the time, yes, I did hold a record for being the youngest climber to a 20,000 feet peak, which is something that I'm really happy about. Yeah, that, that passion was, uh, it's always remained. And after that, I kept climbing and yeah, then founded this uh, founded this adventure company along with, uh, and later rustic travels. So yeah, I mean, like I said, there's really nothing else that I would rather be doing than than, than trekking in mountain- and sharing this love for the mountains. I mean, getting people to fall in love with the mountains the way I have done. I think that's what just makes me happy. Nothing makes me happier. Like I said, awesome. So basically, for the rest of us, uh, mere mortals like us, where when we, um, you know, land on this earth. We generally crawl before we start to walk. For you, you started climbing before you started to walk. Right? So yeah. <laughs> it was that 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 early for you initiation into climbing. And your father yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is, uh, uh, I believe, Doctor S. C. Biala. Is that correct? He was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's an yes. educationist so, and a mountaineer himself. Yes, yes, he is actually. He's. Uh, I, I would like to say, without trying to boast, that he is among the most prominent mountaineers in India. Uh, so he was, he's currently the principal of the, of a school in Dehradun. Before that, for almost 20 years, he was a, te- a teacher in the Dune School. And uh, before that, another boarding school uh, in India. Uh, apart from other things, he was the master in charge for uh, adventure in, in the Dune School and doon school has always had a very rich tradition towards mountaineering um, some of the earliest explorers of the himalayas were, uh, were from doon school so in fact uh, our, our first headmaster mr F- uh, mr foot uh, who was then a who was then a mountaineer and a trekker in 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 england uh, when he was offered to be the headmaster of the doon school he drew up a map and he saw where the was, and he saw that oh wow this is so close to the Himalayas, and his only reason for coming and accepting the headmastership of the Dune School was because it it was so close to the Himalayas, and pretty much every trek, every route in the Garhwal Himalayas, uh, the credit for exploring all of them goes pretty much goes to uh, goes to masters of the Dune School, including Mr. Gurdev Singh, Mr. Gibson, Mr. Foot, like I said so yeah we've had a very rich history and my father kind of took after taking after after joining school and after taking over uh, as the uh, as the uh, master in charge for adventure and doing school he kind of just took that forward and from 83 onwards he started and his first expedition was to kalanak uh, which is also called the black peak at 21000 feet and then he started and kind of yeah he's for another 20 years he led uh, students and uh i like to believe that that is an achievement that is very that is almost unparalleled in sort of in, in Indian adventure because every and all the other mountaineers are climbing for themselves uh for their own achievement whereas uh my father took students i mean students who are 16 years old 17 years old and got them climbing and taken them for two twenty thousand feet mountains and uh to the extent that he's never had any single injury, never had a single accident, nothing. And so, so yeah, so I like to believe he's a very, um, his achievement is quite unparalleled. That's great. So having somebody at home, uh, you know, with uh, like with the caliber that he has, I, I believe it, it sort of reflects on, you know, for example, somebody like you, uh, who sort of grew up in the same household, and uh, or his guidance and skills would have, you know, really come handy to you. Even though you went ahead and did mountain ring course at uh, NIM uh, later on. So tell me about that as well. Um, uh, when did you go to NIM and how long were you? And what did you do there? And I mean, is it also is it important or necessary to do a mountain ring course before you know, I mean, start trekking or climbing? Not for trekking per se, but it always just helps from a, as a, I mean, if you're, if you're looking seriously towards getting into mountaineering, it does kind of help. Uh, Again, like everything else, I think I did all of my courses at a very young age. Uh, I did the advanced course when I was, the basic course when I was sort of in my, just out of, just out of school. Uh, And then I did the advanced course, I think just a year later. So I think even both of those times I was among the youngest uh cadets in that entire batch uh yeah but, so which was nice um it's 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 i wouldn't say it's easy it's it's one of the most challenging um things that i have ever done both the basic and and the advanced to the extent that through so the middle of the course i kind of so many times I, I i seriously contemplated faking an injury so that i could go back because it's just so challenging the, the entire course i mean uh having to wake up every day at 5 in the morning, compulsory, cold water bath, and they make you run quite a bit. Wow, and which, then and you will, this yeah. is cold water bath. This is in the Himalayas, yeah. Uttarkashi, right? In it's already Himalayas, cold out there. Yeah, in Uttarkashi. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's quite cold anyways. So, so luckily my courses were in the summer. Uh, the basic was in the summer. The, the, the advanced course was around September, October, which is even colder actually. Uh, there are some courses that happen in November, so that's even worse for them but yeah so i mean i guess it just, it's just it's a regimented way of doing things so i mean the, the history of the of nim was um, immediately in the aftermath of the 1962 war with china where uh, there was a realization that our forces were not equipped for mountain warfare uh, these institutes were started including hmr darjeeling nim uttarkashi and another two one is in manali and one is in gulmar uh so so basically, to equip our forces for high-altitude warfare. So all of these institutes are still run by the Ministry of Defense. And uh, so it's very regimented in terms of a very army style of um, of training. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 the level, level of discipline is amazing. And uh, while, like I said, I mean, through the entire course, you'd probably be cursing yourself for coming here. And you know what kind of madness got into you for even thinking about doing something like this? Uh, at the end of the 30 days, you feel like you're Superman almost. I mean, uh, you're you're carrying 20, 30 kilo on your back for 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 long periods of time for hours and hours. Uh, the idea behind testing yourself physically anywhere in anywhere in life, right? I mean, uh, why do we run a marathon? Why do we why do we climb a mountain? I mean, it's one of those reasons is to kind of push yourself push your boundaries and these courses will push you to the extent that you never thought you could i mean you never thought imaginable uh you know like taking you to levels that uh, yeah i mean absolute levels of test uh, test of uh, physical test of your of, of yourself and obviously mental so yes i mean while it's not necessary yes the, the uh, the, I mean the the Indian Mountaineering Foundation mandates an expert. I mean, I, I, if you if you're looking at serious mountaineering, the it is sort of mandated that you have to do at least the basic course. Uh, but but I mean, not necessarily so much outside India. But I mean, like I said, just purely from being able to test yourself physically and mentally, it's highly recommended. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. I so what on do they teach you there or what or do you go through obviously the physical regimen you spoke about uh, just now hmm. but i yeah. believe there's a lot of hmm. uh, there's quite a bit of technical training which uh, sort of uh, one has to go through yes. yeah. now yes. uh, what is yeah. all this technical training why does like one needs for it to you know climb a mountain why can't just somebody with good you know gear and shoes and everything start walking and go. So what, what, what does one has to you know, go through? What is, what is all this technical training? So both the courses are about 28 days each and they start off with um, uh, just a little bit of physical conditioning. Uh, there are three modules of the course. One is rock craft, one is snow craft and the third is ice craft. Uh, rock craft happens in, I mean, in Utarkashi itself at a training area called Tekla which is about uh, 2 to 3 hours of walking from the campus uh where they teach you all the techniques of rock climbing uh apart from purely just how to climb uh, to things like the kind of knots that you would require the kind of how you would belay your uh, your partner and things like those uh the second module is snowcraft where again i mean similarly uh, where uh, they take you to a glacier where they take you uh, yeah uh, sort of a little further into the mountain teach you the techniques of climbing in snow uh, and the third module being ice craft which is basically if you encounter if you encounter a glacier or if you encounter uh, an ice wall how do you climb that how do you fix a rope over there how do you um, how do you negotiate a crevice uh, and all of that learning is happening not in theory but on the spot, like you're you're at a glacier, you're at 70,000 feet where you're encountering all the challenges that a mountaineer will encounter, including uh, high altitude sickness, uh, including extreme levels of fatigue that obviously the altitude brings to you. And, and at that particular time, uh, you're waking up early in the morning, you're carrying that 20, 30 kilo uh, load on your back and you're doing all of this training uh, so yeah i mean from from all those perspectives it just gets you ready like like nothing else can uh, towards mountaineering uh without it if you're really looking at being a serious mountaineer or uh, or a serious trekker i don't think i mean while well, yes practically you can do a lot of things with with, with a lot of practice and stuff like that but it just helps to have already done those before really um, implementing that uh, in, uh, on your own, basically. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would that would be about it. Okay, okay, uh, that's th- those are really good inputs. Uh, I think uh, a lot of our listeners who want to start, um, you know, want to climb uh, should definitely listen to all these steps. So during this time, while you were in school, and while you were doing, you know, uh, getting this training, so how many peaks did you climb during that time? Do you have a count? Or know, like, it's <laughs> you so lost in count. Total, No, 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 not really. Actually, unfortunately, like I said, I mean, like you said, the introduction, uh, the last six, seven years, I haven't been able to climb as much, but uh, I have climbed about six till now. Um hopefully many more. Uh, I'm not even close to how many my fa- father has climbed. My father's climbed upwards of 25, 25 peaks of over 20,000. So yeah, maybe one day I'll get somewhere close to that. Yeah, you're still that, very young with I think you have a long way to go. <laughs> so after yeah, so the good thing, sorry, go ahead. the good thing is that my father, for everything that he's achieved in mountaineering, he started trekking at the age of 33. So I think I do have a head start. So so even let's say your older listeners who are listening to this, where you think you know you've probably become too old for this, or uh, you know, up, up the time chill again, like, that's that's not really true. I mean, my father has, like I said, climbed about twenty-five peaks and he started at the age of thirty-three. So you know, it's never too late. It I mean, definitely for me, for older interviewers, there's definitely hope listening to that. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah. after graphics, really. Yeah. So, um, so basically, um, after Doon School, um, uh, what did you do? You, uh, I believe, you went to college in Delhi, and you also did an MBA. How, how was that journey? So, were you still yeah, you during that time, or you just, you know, went to sort of yeah different yeah. I mean, of what happened? I mean, good thing about good yeah. So, good thing about going to college in Delhi University is that attendance is not so much a problem. <laughs> So yes, I've, I mean I would be in college, uh, mark a bit of my attendance, have a good time with some of my friends, but by and large, I was pretty much just trekking and climbing. So like I said, I did my basic course right after school, which was the period between uh, between sort of when you pass out of school and before college starts. I, I That was like a two-month period. I did the basic course in that particular period. And uh, immediately after, like as soon as college started, so sort of... Um, so in that April-May period, I did the basic course, and in the September-October period, despite I mean, once college had started, I did the advanced course. Uh, like I said, at that point of time, the, the, the level of passion was was just uh, was just was just amazing. And so yeah, um, like I said, uh, basic and advanced at that point of time, uh, and. Um, Kept kept freelancing with a lot of adventure companies at that point in time, leading their expeditions. Not uh, not too many expeditions, largely treks, uh, and uh, yeah, and the occasional expedition. Uh, yeah, that would be about it. Um, the 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 best thing about my college was it was walking distance from the Indian Mountaineering Foundation, and uh, Indian Mountaineering Foundation has some amazing rock walls inside their campus, and the membership is very cheap, I think. At that point of time, I think it was about 100 rupees for a, for, a, for a month and they'll give you an instructor and they'll give you all the equipment and you can kind of just go climb over there. So, uh, yeah, even during college, half my time was just spent at the Mountaineer IMF campus, uh, climbing the rock walls over there, training over there. So, which is, which is an amazing time. Uh, after that, yes, I did my MBA. Um Largely, but I don't think even during my MBA, my, my my thought process or my intention was ever to get very serious into sort of, uh, sort of into the corporate world. I always knew that I would always Okay, so sorry, just to add to that, what mountaineering or what trekking also did was uh, fuel this tremendous passion towards photography as well. Like, I guess that can happen with anyone who's very seriously in, into nature because once you're there, there are those sights and there are those amazing sounds and you kind of want to capture them and you want to bring them back and you want to relive those memories. And what that, what that later did was he, you want to get more serious into, into that kind of thing because you want to then capture those better. So that also fueled this tremendous drive towards photography I mean, and only nature photography because... Like I said, I mean, I wanted to kind of capture those amazing places. So during college, what I also did was I did my um, did a basic course in photography followed by a professional course in photography. So I was also freelancing. Apart from doing a lot of freelancing teching work, I was also doing a lot of freelance photography work. So yeah, like I said, that was also happening. So yeah, so and then obviously uh, the MBA, I don't think was sort of too... Get very serious in the corporate world. I knew that I would always want to be in the business of either photography or mountaineering. So the MBA was about learning the business side of things, so that I can eventually get into the business of of mountaineering and the business of photography. And and I'm glad that I did. So I think yeah, I mean that was the MBA side of my things. Any MBA side of things, I don't think it was ever intended to be anything else. So yeah. Really interesting. So, so uh, uh, during the MBA, also you were very clear that uh, you will not go into a corporate world for a long time. You would uh, step into entrepreneurship. Was it's, that yeah. something? Yeah. So, it's, it's so it's not, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not like I have something against the corporate world. I think it's it's. I mean, it's it has its upsides as well. Uh, when i was working i was also very happy in the corporate world it's, it's not like i had some issues there it's just that I, I mean i always knew that this is where i want to be so my thought process behind the mb and thought process behind the corporate world was to pretty much spend time there and really understand my clients because these people will be my future clients so so yeah that was kind of it and it really did help because um we did in the initial hours of my modern adventure, we did some really good things in terms of marketing I mean, we created categories that did not exist at that point of time. So yeah, I mean, I think my time in the corporate world, my time in the MBA had a great bearing in terms of where we are now. So yeah. So so you worked in Bombay very briefly. I mean, during your stint, yes, in the public relations and, and marketing. Yes, great. The, and then you went back home. Home is Dehradun, yes. right? Where where you are right yes. now also. And uh, yes. okay, let's me start something in this space, right? That's what came to you, and that's when you started my Himalayan adventure. So tell us more yes. about that. You know, what was the thinking process behind it? Or was it, you know, just a way, Okay, let's do it. Like, how was it? So like I said, in help. the at the initial part of uh, our interview, And When right? was this? Which this, year? This was 2011. Okay. Uh, so like I said, initially, uh, there is this tremendous love for the Himalayas and nothing would nothing makes me happier than to spread this love. And that was the real intention. At that point pointed then there were plenty of companies that were plenty of adventure companies that were doing treks and programs for adventurers. There was no one that, no one real that was really making uh, programs or sort of customizing them towards people who've never trekked before or people who want to be initiated for the first time. People who uh, want to um, initiate their children or bring their families along. So that was really what it was completely tailored to. I mean, even even now, our sort of we don't necessarily target um, experienced or ex- sort of ex- uh, sort of more serious checkers. We really just target um, people who are looking at coming for the first time. Uh, making programs very simple, making making them very customized, and marketing them, marketing them accordingly. I mean someone who's coming for the first time has a million doubts a million questions. So everything that the, the idea is to simplify it in every way possible. And uh, yeah. Uh, and, and so yeah, that's that was that was so sort of the idea. So what changes? So uh, um, one is that uh, uh, you uh, cater or you know, organize treks for, let's say families or first time trekkers, you know, that is the audience and obviously so the second audience, which you uh, which is are the schools, right? You do a lot mm. of uh, learning outdoor learning programs, you know, for them also, we'll talk about it in a bit. But uh, uh, for example, a trick uh, for let's say the audience which you have, which is uh, the new trekkers, families who yeah. are not yeah. so you know, experienced trekkers. what changes you know, when you're organizing for them, vis-a-vis, let's say, some serious trekkers, people who have been doing that for a long time, they come to you. So, what what is the difference between sure. you know, in terms of the logistics and the organizing? What changes? Uh, so, if someone's more experienced, they can challenge themselves a lot more in the Himalayas. So, you don't have to be as pre-prepared uh, with with, the, with with the entire program. Uh, so I mean I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but in terms of the programs that we are currently doing, we've kept that number very limited. It's not like uh, if if you go if you if you look at our website and you look at the treks that we offer, it's not like we have a hundred hundred treks or a hundred itineraries on our website. We have five to six itineraries which are extremely uh, uh, well thought out, well researched. Um, Every trek that we do offer would have—I mean, I would have at least done that uh, a a number of times myself—and and and thought about every aspect of that trek in terms of how it would work towards someone who's coming for the first time. Every aspect, like I said, that is thought through includes uh, the amount of road travel in the Himalayas because the roads are windy, the roads are uh, bumpy so anyone who is coming for the first time can find it a little challenging to uh, sort of to travel very long distances on those roads so first criteria is to minimize the amount of road travel so there are a lot of treks where you have to travel 9 10 11 hours on a on a mountain road and that kind of starts the experience for anyone who is coming for the first time or anyone who is bringing their children so, like I said, the first criteria, minimizing the road travel to four hours, five hours, six hours. Or in certain cases where you can't do that, you modify the itinerary to, to make it, uh, to break that travel time down to, say, two days or, you know, add something else so so that you're not traveling very long on those particular roads. Uh, second aspect being making sure the camps are not very cold and the camps are not very windy because... Uh, let's say bar in Delhi, most of the most of the, the large cities where people are coming from uh, have sort of moderate climate, and people aren't necessarily that used to the cold. So while you should kind of experience that it has to happen slowly. So therefore, the planning for camps has to be in a way that you know, it's not like one day you're at 20 degrees, or 30 degrees, the next day itself, you're at minus five or, minus, or something like that. So planning for the for those camps. Then taking things like wind chill and stuff like that. I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, uh, making sure the it's it's not very it's not it's it's fairly comfortable. Um, taking into consideration where you're camping uh, in terms of the altitude. Um, any anyone who's coming the first time, I'm sure even I mean, Hey Manthi, you you will you kind of agree with me here that altitude is the biggest challenge for anyone who's coming for the first time. I and mean, uh, things Absolutely. like headache and stuff like that, which is normal but anyone who's coming anyone who doesn't know about this or is experiencing it the first time can get quite hassled so therefore the planning in terms of uh, where you are camping to make sure that you know all these other effects are also minimized uh, so yeah those are the differences in terms of all these treks are very well thought out in terms of all of these parameters so that we're making sure that your first experience is as sort of comfortable as possible apart from that obviously the equipment that uh, that is that, that we have given i mean based on a lot of feedback based on our own experience when we were trekking obviously so when we started trekking in our doon school everything is very basic i mean so when we were planning a trek if if at the very bare basics where we have to carry everything ourselves we have to cook everything ourselves if we had if we had to if our budget was about 3000 rupees our masters would give us about 2000 rupees. So we had to go even more basic. So while we were trekking in absolute bare basics, we would imagine what would an ideal trek be like what if this was here, what it would be amazing, you know, so we were like, wow, if we had a chair over here, that would be amazing. If you could have a bonfire over that would be amazing. A heater would be so good, you know, a nice meal would be would be great over here. So everything that we could think of that we would have liked to have on the trek is what we kind of do now. Uh, is kind of is what we provide on the treks. So yeah, I mean, from every aspect we've covered. So I would uh, say it, it uh, would be a pretty luxury yeah. trek. I mean, you know, yeah, going with it you. is really luxurious. Nice. So I think, I think and you yourself have mentioned that in a blog where, I think you when you did your first trek, you did that solo, and you were thinking you have a staff of like one is to two or something and your friends would make fun of you that you know you are sort of you have such a high ratio of staff and it turns out that for you trekking you had a ratio of i think six or seven people you're like this is absolutely your luxury so so yes so yes i mean while it's i mean you can't compare this to the luxury that you would get in in sort of in a city but from a Mountaineering perspective, yes, it's it's very luxurious. Great, okay. So uh, I think uh, great tips uh, for somebody who wants to you know go to the Himalaya, especially and trek for the first time. Uh, now uh, come to the second part of you know school programs. So you do yeah quite a bit of them, right? And uh, since you are located in the generally so uh, again, I mean, it's uh, it's it's uh, there are a lot of you know. Uh, Boarding schools, uh, prestigious boarding school, right from Doon School to you know, a lot of them, and um, uh, quite a few of them are, uh, you know, outdoorsy and you know the kids want, you know, they have programs for this. So, what what do you do in your typical school programs? What happens? So, I mean, I could tell you some of really the interesting stories about our school programs. I sure, mean, sure. How we learned the hard way how to do things well, mm-hmm. and uh, I think. Uh, nothing teaches I like to say right nothing teaches nothing is nothing in life is better teacher is a better teacher than actually practically learning everything on your own, so on our first track, so this is about one year into the business where we had typically done tracks for fifteen people, ten people, maximum twenty people at a time, and suddenly you were given the school contract for about i think two hundred kids at the same time, and you don 't realize it then, but between 20 and 200, it's a massive difference. I mean, when I was, when the buses arrived at the hotel, and I was looking up from a little distance for 20 minutes, it just kept coming, kept coming, kept coming, and I was thinking, how will I uh, even manage this? And and Murphy's theory, Murphy's law, kind of, that's when I realized that it does work. If something can go wrong, if something will go wrong. And uh, yeah a great lesson in management then so and so what happened that during that trek was uh, so we didn't have equipment for 200 kids at that point of time so we were renting equipment from the from NIM and uh, um so the idea was we will um, uh, we will sort of load the truck with equipment and this was to a trek called Dayara bugyal and which is uh, the, the trek starts from a place called barsu which is about 50 kilometers from uttarkashi and for, on the first night the kids were staying in a hotel which is about 10 kilometers from uttarkashi so th- uh, and the next day the kids would drive another 30 kilometers to the trek base of the trek and from there they start the trek so the idea was the truck will go to the um, uh, to the hotel drop off the Equipment that the students themselves have to carry that would include the rucksack, the carry mat, and things like those. Uh, kids' tracks are not as luxurious. Um, the kids are supposed to uh, carry things themselves, unlike uh, the other tracks where everything gets carried. So anyway, so back so that truck after dropping off the, the equipment that the kids are supposed to carry would have to go up uh, to the base of the track where the tents and the other equipment that the that would go up on either porters or ponies w- would be dropped off. So that. First thing in the morning, next day, all of that equipment can go up. And before the kids arrive, the tents, the camp is basically set up. And and the equipment that was with the kids could get distributed at night. So that first thing in the morning, I mean, so that they pack in the night, pack up all of their clothes inside the rucksack along with it and leave first thing in the morning. Uh, unfortunately, I think there was a language barrier between the truck driver and me uh, where the truck driver did not understand all of this. He did not get clear directions about where he exactly had to go and he went up all the way to the track base, but he did not know where to drop them off. And at that point, during those days, network coverage was not very good. Um, so all of that kind of just got lost and at, at 11 o'clock in the night, we were wondering where the truck has gone. We could not contact him and I was like, uh, there's the equipment worth about about around a crore in that, and my business Whoa. will be over before it even started. <laughs> so, you know, I think was gaya hai, ya truck gaya hai, whatever. I don't know. Something's gone wrong. Just pe- then we send people up, we managed to locate him at one in the night. And that kind of ruined the entire program because then the next, instead of giving the equipment to the students that night, they have, the kids were given equipment after they reached the track base at 11 in the morning. So that delayed the uh, that delayed the starting time. Where the kids should have started the trek by 11 o'clock, they started the trek at 2 o'clock, uh, and um, the equipment which should have gone at at 7 in the morning should have been pitched at the camp by 11 in the morning, uh, got pitched at 3 the, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and and as is and like I said, as is the Murphy's law where something can go wrong, something will go wrong. Uh, it turns out that before the kids could reach the camp. Uh, it started It started raining. And not just raining, it was the heaviest rainfall of the season, where there was a hailstorm also. So um, the kids were walking through hail. Uh, the tent was not pitched. My staff was pitching tents under heavy rainfall. Uh, which obviously, because it's raining so heavily, could not pitch the tents properly. Because um, So those tents are such that you have to kind of dig a nali all around the tent. Uh, those are those kind of tents. And in a in a hurry, they could not do all of that. And because of that, there was water inside the tent at night. So yeah, it was a it was an amazing learning experience. What I did learn from that was next time you ever do something like this, make sure you understand you have a basic understanding of the local person's language. If you don't make sure you're explaining it to him in three languages, which is Hindi, English, and getting it translated to someone in their local language and write it in three languages in their own language, give it to him written and sign it. So that <laughs> there's no scope for doubt after that. It also taught me a lot about managing people because through that entire stress, uh, a bus bus drivers stopped cooperating with me at that point of time, because uh, so while we we would give food to all of them, uh, we, uh, there was I mean, if there was a little challenge here and there, and I kind of told them to come a little later. And they took it in a wrong way. So they kind of kind of almost boycotted me. Next time around, the kids were so happy with us that they were getting out of the bus and saying, thank you, sir, and all of that. Um, so yeah, luckily we've done a lot of schools after that. And and that first experience was, was an amazing one. Uh, in terms of what programs we do for school, like I said, I mean, the idea is to kind of get as many people to love the Himalayas as we can. Uh, we we we've done a bunch of expeditions, uh, including things like expeditions to places like Everest Base Camp. Uh, we have done a, a lot of treks. We do a, we in fact go uh, for a lot of time. So there are a lot of schools where, uh, and I don't mean schools in there. I mean so a lot of schools in there have already been initiated to adventure. There are schools in Bombay, Bangalore, or other places where kids have never I don't even know what this is. Uh, and naturally, because of that, the parents and the teachers are also very concerned about this. So what we do is we go inside the school to the school and we give them that first experience, you know, um, set up ropes inside the building, inside the school building, get them to do rappelling and rock climbing and, you know, like a zip line and stuff like that. Maybe if the weather is, um, is conducive enough, set up tents inside the campus itself. So it's just to give that first experience and then kind of take it forward. So. Yeah, that that would be about it in terms of what we do for school. It's it's it's, it's almost like a pyramid structure to get as many people uh, initiated, and then hopefully slowly, slowly get some of them to kind of fall in love with the mountains like we did. Um, yeah, like any sport, I mean, like every sport has a house team or school team, and then you know, a state team, when the district team, some people end up becoming professionals. That's what we are trying to create. I mean, initiate everyone by going to the school then bringing some of them to like a one-day program, then slowly um, making it a three-day, three four-day program. And then some of them oh. who are really interested end up doing an expedition. Uh, yeah, so that is the kind of structure that we typically have for schools. Awesome. So I think amazing learnings all throughout, I mean, right from the first program till now. So, But by now, oh, yeah, I'm amazing. sure you're a pro right now. I, mean, I know. Yeah, yeah, so like I said, after the the, the next the next trek itself, the kids were like, "Thank you, sir. We had an amazing time." So, <laughs> from there to now, it's it's been amazing. So yeah, great. So, uh, moving on. Uh, so, when you started off, uh, I think obviously you started with this uh, uh, this uh, school program, and many treks later on, and around that time, I also met you. I remember. Then. Um, then you've yeah, you also Ill. had some excellent conversations with with my staff.
1: Oh, yes, during that time,
0: I, yeah, uh, I remember we went to the, the Arab it had snowed completely. But I think that was one of my best uh, treks I've been to with the kind of pictures I took. So I think yeah. those pictures are all over the internet, people steal from me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> those pictures, seriously. <coughs> nice. <laughs> mm. So um, uh, after that, um, I believe we, um, so things came to a bit of a standstill I think in your <laughs> personal life, you became ill, uh, I mean, it was seriously ill. I mean, since you uh, were diagnosed with uh, cancer, leukemia, yeah. I know you don't talk much about it, and I will not press on that. But do you want to tell us very briefly what happened and how you yeah, um, overcome it? it? I don't like to talk so much about it primarily because, I mean, um, uh, there's this whole talk about being brave, being brave. But the point is, at that point of time, you really don't have much of a choice. You have to be brave. You have to fight it because you don't fight it. The option, the other option is not an option, you know. So so this so is which at, year at time, bus? Sorry. This was in 2013. This was in 2013. So what I'm saying is that at that in that that moment in life, you all find that bravery. So it's not like I should be considered an inspiration because I have fought cancer. I mean, but I, but while I say that, if my story of this fight and kind of where I kind of reached after that can help someone who is currently going through it, then I'll be glad to kind of tell my story and maybe, maybe help them out. Um, so yeah, this happened in 2013 in October. Uh, and it's one of those things where you realize that life can kind of just turn 360. I mean, I was planning a holiday with a friend of mine that maybe we'll go to Goa for the weekend or something like that, or we'll do a road trip and it turns out that none of that can happen because uh, my reports on that particular day said that uh, my, I had uh, uh, AML, which is a form of leukemia, and my treatment had to start pretty much the next day. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, one of those most difficult times, and during that time, I think it was this love for the mountains that was one of those big driving factors uh, that kept help kept kept me fighting. I mean, apart from obviously the family, family support, and my friends, and I mean that uh, that that cannot be under uh, under. I mean, I can I can never say less about the amount of support I had. Uh, But since we're talking on the topic of mountaineering and adventure, I mean, this is one of those big factors, I mean, uh, one of those days, I think this is into my first chemotherapy where, which is a very down day, I think, sixth or seventh day where, uh, I mean, I was losing a lot of blood, Uh, my hemoglobin was, was down, I was constantly getting blood. And, you know, that those are one of those days when, you, when you're kind of just questioning yourself, you're just kind of in doubt about whether you really want to even fight it and all of that. So my father kind of sensed that, you know, I'm, I'm having a very rough day and I'm kind of questioning this entire thing. He kind of just sort of took out his diary and he started drawing a map. Like, you know, and he was, and this is a map of the treks that we've done. Uh, I mean, you know, the area, the area, Dorital area. And um, so this is in Garhwal and it's one of my favorite areas I think I've done that done that trek at least 15-20 times and he sort of started drawing a map of the area and he was like this is the lake if we go up from here this is that top and instead of turning left which we normally do we'll go straight and you know over from here we, we kind of cross this river and there'll be an amazing there should be this amazing glacier and you know from there we'll reach this particular area. It'll be a seven, eight day trek, it'll be tough, but I think it'll be, it'll be a fabulous trek. I think it's a beautiful place to explore. And he was like, you know, then we'll go there. And that was just like this immediate, um, immediate kind of uplifting thing, you know, that, okay, I mean, (laughs) this is, this, this, what I'm going through right now is not permanent and I will get better and, you know, I will have those days when I will be able to go and explore that. so that was one of those things that kind of really, um, um, yeah, kind of almost brought me back, you know, and kind of kept me fighting and all of that. Uh, yeah, uh, and so, yeah. So as, that, yeah so, so as they say that, So as they say, tapas that. You know, you to get well. Obviously, uh, a lot of family support, friends, doctors, medicines help. But uh, end of the day, it's you who make yourself better. And unless there's a ray of hope or hope, you will not overturn it. So no, no, no. Um, maybe your uh, love for mountains that you'll go back in the, in the outdoors, you may not climb or trek, but just be there in the outdoors in front of the mountains would have had some effect on it. I agree. I agree. That was, that, was, that was the ray of hope. I mean, how much ever longer it took, it took me almost three years after that to really go back on my first trek. But, that was something that I mean, I kept looking forward to. And that was something that kept driving me. I mean, through those through those very difficult times. where Yeah, I mean, you have those days where you genuinely when you genuinely question whether you kind of want to even fight it. And so I think that would be one of those messages for anyone who kind of is in that doubt. I mean, it doesn't have to be mountaineering. It doesn't have to be trekking. It could be anything that you are passionate about anything that you love doing. And have that conviction that you will be able to kind of be, uh, get out of it and do those things that you love doing. I mean, these days don't, these difficult times won't last. It's, it's the good times that that last. And so, yeah, just have the conviction. It, it may be difficult to fight it right now. You just, yeah, just don't lose faith. You know, that would be, doesn't have to be trekking, doesn't have to be mountaineering. It could be anything that you love doing, you know. Yeah, that would be something that I could, a message that I could give. Hopefully, uh, through you, it reaches all those people. I hope it does. Uh, because I think that's a very beautiful message. Uh, and something which you have gone through. So, it's uh, completely genuine. And, uh, uh, you know, it's... it's. If I could add... Another thing that I could add was, um, if I yes. can... Sure, sure. Uh, is, uh, I mean, it's like... Uh, like I said initially, I mean, life can turn 360 overnight. I mean, like I mean, here I was planning my next uh, weekend getaway and you know things like that, and life just turned overnight. I mean, from to something that you could never, you couldn't even imagine. I mean, take coronavirus for example. I mean, who could imagine six months later we could be going through all of this? So don't get obsessed with um, planning, planning for your future, and you know, don't push things you want to do today to tomorrow, thinking. Let me make my money. Let me uh, do everything. Let me save up and do all of that. And I'll do the things I love doing tomorrow. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. By all means, plan for your future, plan everything, work hard, but don't push your push push your dreams to tomorrow. I mean, that's also very important. So it's just two of... messages. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that's your bang on uh, Tapas. Uh, uh, and I feel there's a. Uh lot of bit of similarity between uh, you know what you spoke about life and your experience with let's say climbing a, like let's say climbing a mountain or a peak we may have certain routes in mind we may have certain plans right but weather might change somebody might get ill some supplies we may lose it something may happen and it uh, it has happened to me i'm sure it has happened with you also you know things haven't gone to the plan so what do you do i mean uh, there are many times we have sort of come back that doesn't mean we are defeated or anything it's just that you know we yeah. will try it some other day or uh, some sometimes we had to wait for some 3 days because it's been snowing completely okay let's wait it out and you know try it again so i think this is a mo- mountain climbing yeah. what we have gone through uh, and a lot of people do mountaineers. There's a huge uh, similarity with you know what life throws at us. Uh, agreed agreed right? You can have yeah. You can make all the plans you want. I mean, nature as life has different plans for you. So, I mean, you just have to kind of go with it. So, I mean, yeah, on that on that point, I mean, so a lot of uh, so there are certain things that I don't agree with with with, with uh, climbers who are not from India. So we have this. So Indians as climbers, we consider the mountains to be gods. So as a sign of respect, uh, a lot of us don't actually summit to the don't don't climb the absolute summit of the mountain. We always sort of go two meters below the mountain. I mean, we'll we'll always stop like yeah, one or two meters below, so that our head is below the summit of the mountain because we consider them gods. Uh, uh, yeah, and and like and foreigners say that we've conquered the mountain when they've climbed it, which I find very wrong. I mean, there's no way you can conquer the mountain. You can just you can just, I mean, find a way up that mountain and pray that you re, re, and that you return safely. There's no way that you can ever conquer that mountain. The, the day you say that you've conquered it, uh, that mountain will throw up a challenge that you can never. That, I mean, that will be too difficult for you to negotiate. So, yeah. So yeah. So you're right. I mean. So basically, um, respect for the mountains is something which we you know, is, is, is is extremely paramount. I mean, true. yeah. Great and 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 like you said i mean uh, we can we can make all the plans that we want but the mountain has different plans so totally. uh, yeah so true so true so um, uh, how are you now tapas um, uh, are you completely fine yep. how, how how's yep. it going right. yeah um, yeah i uh, have, have minor challenges um, hmm. um, which are an inconvenience i would be ideal if they weren't there but i mean uh, for something so big uh, little minor issues are okay uh, they do they do kind of create issues sometimes but uh, by and large I've been getting better I've, I'm climbing again I haven't yet climbed a 20,000 peak my li- my latest my last was the Everest base camp which is uh, a, year, a year back I think and I've been training um, hopefully to climb Everest sometime in the near future um, awesome again for the same message that I just conveyed uh, to people who might be sort of uh, in that position where they find that fight difficult. Uh, so currently, I believe there aren't any cancer survivors who have climbed Everest. So If I do, then you know, I think I can be one of those people who who can help a cancer patient fight. I mean, that you know, someone who has gone through something like that can test his himself to the absolute limit. I mean, then he's so can I. So hopefully, let's see um yeah, that's my, that's my target we'll see like like you said life throws up different challenges but that's the hope that's awesome i mean, wish you all the best of us i hope uh, yeah, you are uh, able to do that we will be like cheering behind you <laughs> awesome so yeah, I, would, uh, I would hope that you come with me <laughs> i hope so too uh, Great. So uh, what are what are your plans for the future in terms of traveling, trekking, climbing? I'm sure you would have a long list. I mean, uh, you told me that you and your father, I and mean your father, you made a list when you were in the hospital already. I'm sure you must have done most of it by now. But apart from that, what, where I mean, I mean, mean, where, where do you see yourself when you want, want to travel or trek or climb? What is it, a bucket I it the coronavirus has thrown away a lot of those plans, Tom. Uh, we'll yeah, see when I mean, it's a matter of time. It's a matter of few months, maybe. Yeah, we'll see when things do actually resume. But like I said, I mean, um, like I've been saying, even since the start of this, that life for me doesn't go too far beyond mountaineering itself. So the only target is, is to kind of uh, climb as much as I can, trek as much as I can, and from a professional perspective, try and get as many people as I can to fall in love with the Himalayas like I have. Yeah, that's that's really it, you know. And there's, there's nothing else apart from that. I'm training. I'm training for climbing Everest. I'm training for the next climb, whenever that happens. Uh, once things do go back to normal, trekking again and sort of, yeah, bringing people to trek again. So there's no not, no, not much else apart from just, yeah, that's all I really know and I'm passionate about. So, yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. So, um, you you want to add something, anything you want to, for our listeners the us, you have any thoughts, last, final remarks or um, anything you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of people do ask me why, uh, what is, why do you climb and what is this whole uh, reason for... Uh, for coming to the Himalayas and stuff like that so a lot of people who don't kind of do have this question, then they ask Mallory why you climb Everest, he just said it's there and it's just I mean and, and uh, so like I think um, Robert Frost in one of his poems in uh, in the prelude has, has mentioned the mountains, he calls them haunting beings, you know and they kind of move through your thoughts through the day and kind of haunt you at night and things like that And honestly, when we are mountaineering, when we are on a trek, we really, I mean, it's, we kind of always question ourselves about, you know, why are we here? I mean, none, every aspect of of it is uncomfortable. You are cold, you're tired, you know, um, you're uncomfortable, you're inconvenient. And you're like, why are you doing this? But even when you sort of reach that summit, while it's an amazing view, at that point of time, you're just too engaged in, being able to come down safely—it's not like you can spend half an hour enjoying life over there. You have to think about your descent. But it's only after you come back where you realize, wow, this is such what—quite an achievement. I mean, how many people in the world have ever reached that particular altitude? Have reached that point? Have done what you have done? Have seen the views that I have seen? Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's just a haunting presence that the mountains have inside your inside your head that. Uh, once you're there, you need to kind of—they just never let go of you, and not never let go in a good way. Um, so yeah, I mean, if anyone is questioning why, I think this should be able to answer. Great, uh, thank you so much, Sapal. So keep on climbing, keep on walking, and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks. My pleasure. Had a great time. Thank you so much for listening into to another episode of the Rustic Travel Podcast. Hope you liked it. Please do send us your feedback so that we could improve with each episode. To get updated on future episodes of the shows, you could visit our website rustictravel.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to any of the podcasting apps as mentioned there. You could also follow Rustic Travel on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to know about the new episodes or shows. Till then, travel safe, travel responsibly.